So over my, over my 20 years as a pastor, um, I've done many weddings, uh, more weddings than I can actually remember. And I can tell you stories of how the father giver, who is the one presenting the bride to be married, and who incidentally has the shortest line of the entire ceremony, has actually ended up botching his line. And so, all that he has to do when asked the question, who gives this woman to be married to this man? He either has to say, her mother and I do, if the mother is still living, or simply I do. But one very nervous father of the bride blurted out the words, my mother and I do, <laughs> much to the embarrassment of his dear wife. Now, the father of the bride in this first wedding that we will consider this morning played his role to perfection. And so in Genesis chapter 2, uh, reading verses 18 through 25, we find the following. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now this passage contains many nuggets about what God had in mind when he first designed marriage and performed the first wedding. In fact, I never do a, a, a wedding without first taking the uh, bridal couple to this particular passage. So some of the um, nuggets that we'll find, uh, first of all, that you should never underestimate God's role in marriage. Never underestimate God's role in marriage. Now, how many times in the passage do you find the words, the Lord God, pronouns like I or he that are used to refer to God? If you took a tally, you would find seven occurrences. Seven is the biblical number for perfection. You'd find, for example, the Lord God said it is not good for the man to be alone. You'll find also... I will make a helper suitable for him. The Lord God caused a man to fall into a deep sleep. He, meaning God, took one of the man's ribs. He closed up the place with flesh. The Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. He brought her to the man. So we find God featuring very 
prominently in this first wedding. Marriage was all his idea. It originated in the mind and in the heart of God. Adam didn't even know that he needed a wife until he started naming all the animals and realized that all of the animals had a partner and he had none. And so he had no one to hold hands with, no one to walk by his side, no one to talk or laugh with or cuddle up with or share life with. Adam must have felt very miserable because the word says that God concluded it is not good that the man should be alone. I believe Adam probably had a pouting on his face because he recognized everybody had somebody or something or some other animal and I don't have any. God concluded it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. I don't believe that God was comparing singleness to marriage in this passage. Nor was he proclaiming singleness to be wrong and marriage to be good. God was speaking within the context of how he had wired Adam. The feelings, the desires, the predispositions he had placed within Adam. God declared that it was not good for man to be without someone of his kind, someone with whom he could express those feelings, desires, and predispositions, someone to love and be loved by. 2,000 years later, that is after God had uh, done this, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament wrote a theological and pastoral response to people in the church who had written to him on whether singleness was preferable to marriage. Now, this was Paul's response in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Now, concerning the matters which you wrote about, so you get a sense here that Paul is responding to what um, these people in the church had written to him. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a man. The King James Version says to touch a woman. I'm sorry, did I say man? For a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. I'm glad I caught that because I didn't want anybody to leave here saying that I said that. But Paul continues, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then Come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, from this teaching by the Apostle Paul on whether singleness was preferable to marriage, we can draw at least four conclusions about marriage, first of which is this. The decision on whether to marry or remain single must be made individually, it must be made carefully. It must even be made prayerfully. 
and it must be based on your capacity for resisting sexual temptations. If you can, Paul is arguing, then you may remain single. If you cannot, then you should marry. In other words, there is no one-size-fits-all regarding these two issues of singleness or marriage. It all depends on whether you can self-control. Secondly, if you marry, then be monogamous. If you marry, then be monogamous. Anybody's phone is going off and can attend to it? Because I think the longer it does, the more distractions I'm having. <laughs> All right, okay. So, if you marry, which you have every right to do, then you must be monogamous. That is, have one spouse. Have your own husband or your own wife, not someone else's. Be sexually faithful to each other. I wonder who is going to win out in the end, me or the phone? <laughs> I think maybe I will, right? Because you will, you'll give full attention and then forget all about the phone, all right? So be sexually faithful to each other in your marriage. Be like the swan or the penguin or the wolf or the bald eagle. I'm told that all of these animals, they mate for life. So we must be like them. That's the second thing, be monogamous. Thirdly, Paul says, do not deprive your spouse of the exclusive right to your body. In other words, your body is not your own. It belongs to your spouse. Now, Paul goes on to list three justifiable reasons to say no to your spouse. And please note that a headache is not one of them. <laughs> all right? Okay. All right. First of all, there should be mutual agreement. Both of you should agree. Okay? That's the first principle. Secondly, Paul says it should be for a limited time, not a protracted time, a limited time. Thirdly, it should be to allow for joint prayer or fasting. Because you see, sometimes there are things that affect your marriage, your relationship, and you, you want to devote some time to seeking God together on behalf of that. So it is okay to, to say, no, sir, you might pursue God in prayer and fasting. Here's the fourth principle. Make yourselves available to each other regularly. The reason being, if you don't, Paul says, you give the devil the opportunity to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. You give him the opportunity to make you want to look outside of your marriage for sexual fulfillment. And because we have a difficult time controlling ourselves, Paul says, make sure that it only, it only lasts for a limited time and that you're regularly devoting yourselves to each other. I believe that God had, God had all of this in mind when he brought Eve to Adam to present her to him as his wife. So never underestimate God's role in your marriage. That's our first point. Secondly, a wife should be the suitable helper that her husband needs. Now, the words suitable helper or helper suitable describe the role that God intended for the wife to play in her marriage. Those words occur twice in our text. God says to Adam, or God says 
about Adam, I will make a helper suitable for him. And then the book's author says, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Now the word suitable means appropriate, fitting, um, it means helper, it means partner. And so a wife should be a partner that is, a pro that is appropriate for her husband, fitting for him, compatible with him, and complementary to him in every way. Physically, intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually. In other words, the marital relationship requires and assumes that the husband and his wife will agree on existential, critical existential issues. Now, in the words of my seminary marriage and family therapy professor, that's a long description, she said that a couple, and I, this always stands out in my mind, and, and because I, I felt it was correct, I've, I've used it in every premarital counseling session that I've done. She said, and I agree with her, that a couple should make sure that there is premarital agreement on at least three decisions. In other words, before you get married, you must agree on these three things. One, where we're going to live. Because you see, I might want to live in the country. She might want to live in the city. You know, I might want to live in Indiana, and she might want to live in the Virgin Islands. And what do we do about that? So we... We have, to, we have to agree. I'm so glad that before we got married, she said to me, Theo, wherever you're going, I'm going. And how many places have we gone on? A lot. <laughs> and she has come with me every place we've gone. All right? So agree on where we're going to live because this causes tremendous friction in a marriage. Secondly, agree on where we're going to worship because I may want to worship at Brown's Chapel and she might want to worship someplace else. Agree on where you're going to worship. Thirdly, agree on how many children we're going to have. I may want none. She might want ten. You know, so agree. Now, the Old Testament prophet, or one Old Testament prophet, asked a very fundamental question concerning two imaginary people who are going on a, on a journey or a, a distance together. They're traveling together. They're going to a particular destination, and he asked this, can two people walk together without agreeing on the direction? Can two people walk together unless they were in agreement on the direction? And so any two people in any significant relationship who are walking or driving together, they must agree on the destination. Or there will be trouble, because you see, one might want to go to church, the other might want to go to the Indy 500. <laughs> you know, why, why am I talking about the Indy 500 this morning, you know? <laughs> but there must be agreement, because if there isn't, then there will be trouble. And so similarly, in the New Testament, Paul lays down a foundational principle regarding significant relationships. Now, Amos, the prophet, was talking about, you know, just any two people. But Paul now is talking about Significant relationships among Christians, especially relationships that can lead to marriage. And so first what he does is that he lays down the principle 
and then he substantiates it by using practical examples. So he says this, and you'll see a picture behind me with the verse uh, below it. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That's how it looks when there are two, there's one believer and an unbeliever, and they are linked together in marriage. Obviously, you are aware that Paul is using an old technological farming method uh, in which two of the same animals must be yoked together. Not a, not a donkey and an, and, a, and an oxen, or an ox, I'm sorry. Not two mules, or not two oxen and two mules, but they, they must be two animals that are of the same kind and, and may, maybe even the same physical build that are yoked together. And so then Paul will now substantiate what he's saying by asking some rhetorical questions. Now I'm told that a rhetorical question is a question whose answer is so simple that everyone should know what the answer is. And so my neighbor Jim told me a story last Sunday, which I thought Jim fitted really nicely with this message. <laughs> you know, uh, Jim told it to me yesterday, as, I mean last Sunday as we were visiting. And Jim says that there was this... Um, there was this professor who would travel from college campus to college campus delivering the same lecture. And he used the same driver to get him to all of these lectures. Now, over time, the driver became so familiar with the lecture that he thought to himself, I bet you I can deliver this same lecture. So he told the professor, why don't we switch places because I am, I am very sure that I can deliver your lecture word for word. And so they decided to switch places. The professor became the driver, and the driver became the professor. And, and yes, he delivered the lecture verbatim, word for word. At the end of the lecture, however, one of the students asked a question that stumped him. And um, so he was very quick-witted and said to himself, or in response to the, the student, oh, that's such an easy answer. I bet my driver can answer that question for you. <laughs> which the professor answered, right? So a rhetorical question is one whose answer is so simple that all of us can answer it. And these are some questions that the Apostle Paul is asking rhetorically, and he knows that we know the answers to them. For what partnership, so he has already laid down the principle, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And then he says, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? And all of us know the answer to that question. We know that the answer is none. Or, what fellowship has light with darkness? And we all know the answer to that. So in other words, a husband needs to look for a wife who will choose to go in the same direction that he wants to take her. He needs her to agree with him on critical questions like who God is, who Jesus is, what it means to be a Christian, what a godly, God-honoring marriage looks like, what my role is in the relationship, what your role is in the relationship. A husband needs a wife who can say to him what Ruth said to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And yes, this does not apply to marriage necessarily, but it does. And so this is what Ruth says to Naomi and what every spouse, or every wife should be able to say to her husband. I will not leave you or return from following you. 
For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Every husband needs a wife who can say those words back to him. Thirdly, a husband should be the leader his wife needs. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. I'm told that little Johnny learned in Sunday school one morning that God took a rib from Adam's side and made Eve. And so as he was praying in his room that same afternoon, Johnny started to have a tummy ache. And so he curled up on the floor in a fetal position and he started crying and his cries were so loud that it attracted his mother who was in the kitchen. And so she came in and inquired of him, Johnny, what's, what's the matter? And Johnny is still curled up on the floor and he's groaning and mourning. He's saying, I have a tummy ache, mommy, and I think I'm going to have a baby. He literally thought that God had taken a rib out of, of his side to make somebody, to make his wife. I think I'm going to have a wife, mommy. Now, God took a rib from Adam's side, not from his head. And we all know the implications of that. Didn't take it from his feet either. So that means that a husband should treat his wife as first among equals. First among equals. We're equal positionally, even if we're not functionally. God has given us a, a different function. So husbands or wives uh, do not need us to dominate them or to be their boss or to weaponize against them the scripture that says a wife should submit to her husband. Sometimes husbands do that. We, we kind of weaponize that scripture. Wives don't need us to do that. They need us to serve them, to serve them in loving ways, and then they'll have no problem submitting to us voluntarily, not by force. And so God says, or Paul wrote, under the inspiration of God, husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that, that talks of sacrifice and service, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands, I'm sorry, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies because he who loves his wife loves himself. I don't know of any wife who does not want their husbands to love them in this way. That is exactly, that's exactly what I was counting on, right? Every wife needs their husband to love them like that. And that's how we lead our wives, by loving them and serving them. 
But here's what I've discovered, that a leader can't lead unless he's going somewhere. A leader can't lead unless he's going somewhere and unless he knows where he's going as well. Because I've never met a wife who has not needed to know that her husband was going somewhere and taking her somewhere. And if she could trust that, she would be willing to follow. If she felt safe in that, she would be willing to follow. All right, fourthly and finally, a couple should prioritize becoming one flesh. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, what does it mean for you and your wife to become bone of your bones and flesh of your flesh? I believe that it means that both of you must do some things, not just one and not the other, but both of you must submit to the process of God making you one. You don't become one automatically just because you're married. You become one as you submit to the process of God making you one together. And I believe that the God whom I serve is committed to the two of us becoming one. If he's committed to the two of us becoming one, then it's not his fault that we don't. It is ours that we don't submit to his process of making us one. So here are some things that I believe we both must commit to. Both of us must commit to leaving father and mother. Now, that does not necessarily mean that you abandon them. It does mean, however, that you leave emotionally and in most ways, leaving geographically as well, physically. If I'm going to lead my wife somewhere, I must be leading them out of my parents' home, and I must be leading them from under their supervision and authority so that we can establish new priorities together as a couple. Secondly, both of us must prioritize each other above everyone else. That's why, why Paul, um, Paul writes, or I'm sorry, God says, in fact, to Adam that we must leave, but then we must cleave, meaning that we are establishing a new priority of intimacy. Thirdly, both must commit to sexual abstinence until the wedding night when we can, for the very first time, give ourselves to each other completely, without reservation, without regret, or without shame. Now, that is not what the culture is teaching us today, is it? That is not. Fourthly and finally, neither of us must weaponize the D word. You know what that is, right? That sometimes we keep that word in our pocket and we kind of pull it out whenever we want to use it, the divorce word. Neither of us must do that. I believe if we do these four things under God, we submit to his process. He will make us one, not tomorrow, not next week, but over a lifetime of forgiving and loving, asking for forgiveness, worshiping together, praying together, serving each other. God makes us one. Here's the bottom line of our message this morning. Becoming one flesh with your spouse is your second highest priority. It is very important. Your first priority is to seek God and love him with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Your second priority is to become one flesh with your spouse if you're married.
here are a couple of takeaways from the message this morning. First of all, I want to challenge you to get to know Jesus. I don't want to assume that all of us do know him, even though we're all here. First of all, get to know Jesus. Because you see, he made you in his image. He put his breath in you. He made you a living being. He desires a relationship with you that is closer than any other relationship. I can say personally, there is nothing greater in life than knowing Jesus. Nothing. And so I highly recommend Jesus to you. If you need forgiveness, it is in him. If you need peace with God, it is in Jesus. If you need healing for your emotions, it is in Jesus. If you need freedom from, from an enslaving habit, it is in Jesus. If you need hope, it is in Jesus. So get to know Jesus first of all. Secondly, I want to challenge you to make your marriage like a three-stranded cord. This is what the book of Ecclesiastes tells us. It says, also, if two people, that is assumed, two people lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can, can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. Now, we know that. We know that it is much easier to break a two-stranded cord than it is to break a three-stranded cord. So I want to say to us this morning, keep your bed warm for each other, but let it be just for the two of you. Let it also be in your relationship that the two of you are against everybody else. When, if it comes down to that, let it be the two of you against everybody else. I'm told that it must be back-to-back, belly-to-belly against the, against the world. And very often it needs to be that because we have so many things that are encroaching on our marital boundaries. And so don't allow family or friend or foe to come between the two of you. Reserve that third space only for the third strength, who is God himself. Because you see, the three of you are an unbreakable cord, an unbeatable combination. Thirdly and finally, practice the dance of mutuality. A number of us take the Ephesians passage that says that a, a wife should submit to her husband, but we forget the verse that preceded it. Paul says that there should be mutual submission, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. And so the husband leads by serving, and the wife reciprocates and follows. And sometimes the wife leads if she has an area of expertise. I would be a fool if I didn't allow Randy to, to serve out of her strengths. So sometimes she leads and the husband reciprocates and follows. There's nothing wrong with that. There must be mutual submission in our relationship. And so both of us must serve each other. Both of us must love each other. Both of us must do the things that make God pleased and proud in our relationship. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your words. Thank you for what you teach us from your words. Your words, Lord, offer the blueprint for how we do life, for how we do marriage, for how we do relationships. 
God, we ask your very special blessing on us, whether single or married. Help us, Lord God, to live out our lives each day in a way that honors you and pleases you and is a blessing to one another. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.